Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. We've got such a great show today. Phil, who do we have? Yeah, well, you know, I know like you, Karen, this is a this is an episode that I have been waiting for a long time to get out to our audience. Um, you folks out there, you're in for a treat. This is a guy who has who is one of the authors of the book that is the most recommended book by our guest in the recommendation segment of my interviews. And that book is When Helping Hurts. And this uh, interview is with Brian Fickert. And Brian is also the president of the Chalmers Center. He's the professor of economics and community development at Covenant College. He's also become a good friend of mine since he was, uh, you know, uh, wrote an amazing forward to the book that I was able to put out there a few years ago with some amazing co-authors from all over the world. And so this interview with Brian goes through so many important topics, so many important subjects, and it's, it's a little bit on the longer side, so we're going to get to that interview here pretty quick. Um, after the interview, as always, Karen and I will share a little bit about what we thought about the interview. I'm also going to share number four on the top uh, lessons that I, I learned or were confirmed in 2017, and there's a couple of recommendations that will be in there as well. But before we get to this great interview, which I know you're going to learn from, so get your, get your notebooks out, um, I got a little message here from Andrew Schneidler about a conference that you don't want to miss if there's, if there's any way you can get there, particularly if you are an adoptive or a foster parent. So here it goes from Andrew, and then right after that, we're going to follow with my interview with Brian Fickert. Hey guys, it's Andrew Schneidler out in Seattle, Washington. Um, hey, I want to tell you about something. So my day job, I'm an adoptions attorney and I, I help people who are trying to um, care for kids out of foster care. Um, and what I've quickly learned is, and maybe this is you, um, people will call me and they'll think they need information. But what I quickly learn is these people need someone to listen to them, to validate them, to say me too, to say I'm right there with you. And that was frankly my story too, because my wife and I, all three of our kids are adopted. And so I want to tell you about something coming up that might be near you. It's called the Refresh Conference. We started this about seven years ago, and it was frankly something we planned for ourselves, really, that we needed something not to talk people to becoming foster parents or becoming adoptive parents, but frankly, to take care of the people who are doing that. And so it is all about like the name implies. We, we do have training, but it is a time where you come and we promise you'll have fun. You'll find your laughter again. Uh, if you come with your spouse, we have great stuff um, for for each of you. I'm I'm passionate about having things for the de- for the dads because too often these things are coming purely from a maternal perspective, and that's fine. But there's also dads, and so that's that's my passion. So anyway, if you want, go check out refreshgatherings.org, and you can learn about it. We have we have refresh conferences in Kansas City, in Chicago, in Seattle, and so the, chances are there's probably one near you. Um, there's coming up this coming up in March. There's the Refresh Seattle conference. That's March second and third of 2018. Um, I would love to invite you to that one. I promise, if you come, you'll you'll have a blast. You'll be glad you did. And if you come, come up and say hi to me. See you guys. Well, Brian, it is so great to finally get you here on the show. Great to be with you today, Phil. Well, Ryan, I know that a lot of people, you, you, you don't know this, I, uh, I actually haven't told you this purposely because I wanted to get your actual reaction to it, um, but uh, When Helping Hurts is by far the most recommended book uh, on this show by our guests. You know, we've had about 50 guests or so, and I'd say probably uh, 15 to 20 of them have, have recommended When Helping Hurts as the most influential book that, that it's, that's uh, influenced them and in the work they're doing around the world. Um, so hopefully that will encourage you in what God wrote through you and Steve a few years ago. Yeah, that's a huge encouragement, Phil. We, we don't deserve that, and, and um, it's kind of crazy that God has used this little book in that way, but we're very thankful for that. Yeah, and we're all thankful for it as well. So, um, But can you just, you know, on that note, you know, a lot of people don't know kind of your story and uh, what led you to do the work you're doing with the Chalmers Center and uh, and really what prompted you to write uh, When Helping Hurts with Steve? Yeah, that's great. So um, from my very young age, I have felt called uh, to work amongst the poor and have just tried to figure out what is my role in that. And um, 
uh, in God's grace, was able to get a PhD in economics, focusing on economic development in the majority world and international economics. And uh, when I finished my, my doctor, I took a, a job at the University of Maryland and was doing research there and teaching there. And, you know, that, that's a great place to be if you're interested in poverty because it's just on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And the World Bank is there and the IMF is there and the White House is there. And uh, if they'd called, I could have been there in 20 minutes. They, they, they never actually called, but I, I was ready. I was ready, you know, and uh, and so life was good and, and so on. But um, the Lord started to do a number of things on me. The, the first is I, I became increasingly frustrated with how my discipline of economics uh, conceives of poverty and, and really of what a human being is. And so economists really reduce human beings to material agents. And I thought, you know, I, I was actually studying India at the time. And I thought there's more going on here than just material. Uh, the poverty in India is rooted in something far deeper than just a lack of material resources. And so I was having a hard time just reconciling what I could see, what I knew as a believer with kind of the constraints of my discipline. And then a second thing happened. I got very involved with my church. I was an elder in my church there, and, and I was assigned as the liaison to our deacons. And in, in our church, the deacons were to care for the poor. And I watched the deacons care for the poor, and they reduced human beings uh, to the spiritual. So if the poor would just repent of their sins and come to Christ, well, then all would be well with their physical uh, well-being. And I, I thought that seemed a little goofy, too. And so, so my, my discipline was reducing people to material, and my church was re- reducing people to the spiritual. And then a third thing happened. <laughs> I was asked to teach a Sunday school class, and I didn't know what to teach on, so I was walking through a Christian bookstore, and I'd like to tell you that there were 40 days of prayer and fasting that went into this, Phil, but it was more like um, <laughs> just, well, you know, uh, <laughs> if I wasn't a believer, I'd say it was just luck. It was clearly God's providence. I, I picked up a book to, and thought, well, this looks cool. I'll teach this. And so it was actually a book about the church and about the doctrine and theology of the church. And so I was teaching that Sunday school class, and I got excited about the church. I'm a, I'm a pastor's kid, but, you know, when you kind of see how the sausage is made, sometimes you don't feel like <laughs> it doesn't yeah. look that great, you know. So so I um, got, in, I, I got involved teaching this class, and I fell in love with, with what the Bible says the church is. You know, it's the body and bride and fullness of Jesus Christ himself. And, you know, what we see Jesus doing is ministering to the whole person, right? We see him ministering to people's material uh, needs, but also their spiritual needs. We see those things are in, interconnected, right? So mm-hmm. so I thought, you know, the local church is supposed to be about that, it's supposed to be about uh, being Jesus and being the fullness of Christ uh, and, and dealing with people as whole people. And so uh, one afternoon, I wrote a letter to Covenant College, uh, uh, look, I'm out in Georgia, it's a small Christian liberal arts college, and said uh, to them kind of what I just said to you, said somebody should start an undergraduate program that would teach Christian young people to live and work amongst the poor and to work out of a more biblical framework. And, and somebody should start a center that equips churches to be the body and bride and fullness of Christ, declaring his kingdom amongst people who are poor and addressing their holistic needs. And so uh, the college said, how about you? And I said, not me. I don't know what I'm—somebody's th- I, 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 somebody's got to do this, but not me. And, and so one thing led to another. We came here actually 20 years ago. Uh, this month, and and uh, God has blessed that work. We started an undergraduate program in community development. We started the Chalmers Center, which tries to equip churches to minister to the poor more, more holistically. And so that's kind of my story. And and um, God has blessed me with some great people, some great colleagues uh, who taught me all kinds of things. One of them being my co-author Steve Corbett, who really mentored me and, and and taught me all kinds of stuff. And you know, we were we were equipping churches and trying to work with churches both in North America and around the world. And we we started to realize that. Um, that while there was a lot of excitement uh, in churches, uh, not initially, but after some time, we started to see some excitement in churches about working amongst the poor. But we started to see them doing some things that that really didn't make a lot of sense and that were coming out of some frameworks that we thought were faulty. And so we wrote one, Helping Hurts, hoping that we could help the church to help the poor uh, more effectively. And so that's really kind of that story. Mm. Yeah, and you had mentioned the Chalmers Center and, and doing— uh, work with the poor really around the world. And uh, can you just share with our audience, you know, as we talked about before, there are, you know, people in 89 different countries, and hopefully that will be growing and, and will grow by the time, you know, that this airs. But uh, can you just share how people can actually partner with, like how you partner with, with different people around the world and how you can um, help the, the folks out there who are um, doing this work with the poor in different parts of the world? 
That's a great question, Phil. Thanks for asking. We we um, are, are, are a church equipping organization, so we're not like a typical sort of like a Christian relief and development agency that goes in and starts all kinds of projects and so on. Rather, we uh, don't want poor people to ever hear of the Chalmers Center. Rather, we want the poor to experience the local church as what the Bible says it is, the, the, the hands and, and voice of Jesus Christ. And so towards that end, what we do is we uh, design various kinds of pilot projects around the world and in the U.S., and, and we field test strategies and ideas in those pilot projects. And then we try to equip churches uh, and, and parachurch ministries to use those strategies and uh, those materials on their own. And, and so we're kind of a little bit of backstage. We, we, we kind of want to uh, make the, the local church or parachurch ministry uh, uh, really on, on center stage, right? And so uh, the, the best way to partner with us is actually just to go to our website. We have all kinds of resources there to train churches, uh, again, in North America and around the world. Uh, in, there, there's kind of three different um, components when Helping Hurts, but also something called When Helping Hurts, the small group experience, which is a whole bunch of videos that one can use with a small group study guide. We've got Helping the Hurting Short-Term Missions, uh, Helping the Hurting in Church Benevolence. And so these are kind of things that kind of get some of the core principles that underlie the kinds of poverty alleviation work churches are already doing. But then there's also um, some other resources that get more into the space of uh, economic development. And so uh, in North America, we have something called Faith and Finances, which is financial education for poor people. We also have something called Work Life, which helps people get off of welfare and into the workforce. And so there are training programs available uh, for churches and ministries that want to use those. Then internationally, we do a lot of work in microfinance and savings and credit associations and small business training. And we have a huge uh, project in West Africa. But then out of that, we've created um, some some resources that are, are again online. We have a book called From the Pence to Dignity that explains all that work. And then one can just go online and download um, our, our Savings and Credit Association handbook and our business home and health curriculum. So it's just all sitting there. So anybody who's listening to this podcast today could go online and access those resources and they can run with them on their own. Yeah. And can you uh, just once again, just give that website so that people can uh, can get can get all that information? Yeah, it's just www.chalmers, which is spelled C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S, chalmers.org, www.chalmers.org. And people can go there and all the resources are sitting there. They can download them and run with them. Yeah, and I, I strongly recommend that. And I know that the uh, the seminars that you're doing around uh, around the country are great, phenomenal for churches, great resources there, the books, the Bible study. I mean, it is just chock full of great resources that I imagine you're going to keep uh, keep pumping out as long as uh, the Lord has you there. So uh, we're trying. And uh, yeah, so I, I can't I can't uh, more highly recommend this stuff as as I said as as other guests have as well. Um, well, you know, it was in in implicit in what you're saying, but the, the work that you're doing is just heavily dependent on collaboration and. You know, we talk about on this show, really a big reason we're doing this is to encourage collaboration and, um, you know, encourage people to actually see and know and understand that we need each other to do this work. Um, can you just speak to that, the importance of and really the necessity of collaboration if we're ever really going to even put a dent into these issues that we're trying to address? Yeah, there, there's so many levels at which collaboration is important. And, and, and at the highest level, Phil, I actually think collaboration uh, pleases our Heavenly Father. Y you know, we are His children. And, you know, as a, as a father, I can tell you that, that my greatest joy is when my kids get along with each other. Now, that, that doesn't always happen, right? And so some of my biggest um, uh, uh, days of sorrow are when my kids are fighting, right? Mm -hmm. And and so what what's, what brings me joy is when our family is in harmony, when our family is on mission together, when our family... Is, is pursuing God's purposes together and we're loving each other well and, and um, uh, uh, we're, we're just, we're united. And that brings me great joy. And, and you know, that's what Jesus talks about. Uh, uh, in John chapter 17, just before he's about to be arrested, there he is in the garden. And, and, you know, if I were praying in the garden 
and was about to be arrested and executed, I might be praying for safety. I might be praying for God to uh, uh, rain down fire from heaven on my enemies. And Jesus prays that uh, his followers would be one and and that um, we would be one with each other and one with our Father and with uh, Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. And so there's this miraculous and mysterious unity in the Trinity that we're invited to participate in as his children. And, and um, you know, a number of years ago, uh, we were at a wedding, and, and at the wedding reception, my son went over to his older sister and said, shall we dance? And I watched my son and and his older sister, my oldest daughter, dancing together. Huh. And I just, I could accept, I could have just cried just watching mm-hmm. it. And they were having so much fun enjoying just dancing together. Mm. I thought, man, that's what God wants from his children on earth. And so, so often uh, in Christian ministries and certainly in the space of poverty alleviation, we compete with each other. We, we, we act as competitors and we, we compete for money or position and we even fight over poor people. It, it's just, it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so at the highest level, the highest level, the reason we need to collaborate is just to please our Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Um, at a more practical level, uh, the, the problems are just so big. Uh, and that the, the complexities of poverty are so multifaceted that we just can't all, we, no one organization or ministry can get it all done. You, you know, uh, there are health needs, there are uh, uh, legal needs, there are finance needs, there are uh, theological uh, and spiritual needs. Uh, poverty is multifaceted. Poor people are not just spiritual and not just material, they're whole beings. And so we need organizations and ministries that can address all of those things, right? Yep. And, and then th- thirdly, there are even just within um, a particular sector or intervention, the body of Christ has different gifts. So, so for example, uh, uh, the Chalmers Center is very small. We're, we're, we're very um, kind of uh, designing training and curriculum, but we don't have the capacity to get it out there on a large enough scale. And so yesterday I was with my good friend Peter Greer from Hope International, and, and Hope International is working in the same space as the Chalmers Center is and in, in terms of um, equipping churches and parachurch ministries uh, uh, to use microfinance. Well, Peter's organization is much better at getting it out there than the Chalmers Center is. They, they've, they're larger scale. They've got better systems and more resources. And so we've collaborated with with Hope International, and and um, we've developed some training and curriculum, and and then they get it out there, and, and they get it out there much better than we can. And so we, we need each other. We have different gifts in the body, and, and even within one sector, we have different gifts and different abilities. And so we need each other. We've got to be uh, very cognizant of the gifts that each other uh, has and, and recognize those gifts and not fret about the fact that somebody's got gifts that we don't have and, and just come together to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's just, that's such a beautiful picture. I love what you talked about with the kids. Cause that just, I just thought about it as you said, as you said that, and I fully agree when you talk about the joy versus the, the sorrow, you know, when you go into your yeah. house and you hear fighting and just, yep. it's just, it just depresses you, you know, it, it, yep. it lessens, you know, reduces the spirit. So Beautiful yep. picture. Thanks for that. Um, so, you know, as we as we talk about this on, on the podcast here, we've talked about the interconnectedness with the issues um, that, that we're facing in the world and that churches are facing. And so can you just speak to that as far as the work you're doing with the Chalmers Center to alleviate poverty, how it's interconnected with the care of orphaned and vulnerable children around the world? Yeah, I really enjoyed being uh, the Christian Alliance for Orphans Conference, I guess it was about a month ago in Nashville, and talking with some folks about that intersection. You know, uh, 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 the, the whole space of, of orphan, of, of being an orphan, uh, is often, of course, rooted in the deeper issue of poverty. And so one of the best ways to help orphans is to prevent them from becoming orphans to begin with. And, and that means strengthening the family, uh, including uh, the economic viability of that family. And so a lot of the Chalmers Center's work, we might think of it as being a little bit upstream of trying to help strengthen poor families uh, through things such as microfinance so that they are uh, more financially viable and um, that reduces the vulnerability of the children and reduces the likelihood that they will end up as orphans. And so it's very much on the preventive end. 
But I would also say that it's it's very important for um, thinking about rebuilding families that we can reunite them, right? So sometimes um, children uh, become orphans, but if we can strengthen uh, their family of origin, they may be able to return to the, their biological families. And so it shows up in that space. And then it also shows up in the space of um, strengthening uh, uh, foster families or strengthening uh, adoptive families so that they can uh, take in orphans. I was in uh, Western Kenya a number of years ago and saw a tremendous ministry um, in which a an orphan care center uh, was really placing children in uh, the homes of very poor families, but then they were working to strengthen uh, the economic viability of those families using microfinance so they could provide a, a, a more secure environment for the children they were fostering uh, and provide uh, better nutrition for their kids, provide better education for those kids. And so uh, I think it's important at all levels of the orphan care movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that uh, you mentioned Peter and Hope International, and they, they're writing a chapter for a book I'm working on. And and they talked about that very thing. The microfinance was able to help a family stay together and keep their children and prevent orphans. It also allowed a woman to not only keep her children uh, in, in her home, but adopt a few other kids from the local community because of a, of a, a small loan that she was able to start a business. And it's just amazing stories on how, um, again, all this is interconnected and builds on each other, which is, which is super exciting. Um, That's fantastic. That, that course, Phil, that requires us, you, you know, um, it requires us to get out of our silos a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult. You know, we, each of our ministries and organizations, we're, we're kind of doing our own thing. And we, we kind of get caught up in uh, promoting our own thing, in, in raising funds for our own thing. And it kind of becomes sort of insular and a little myopic. And we, we've got to and open our eyes a little bit to a wider scope and ask what are what are others doing that are close by to us and how can we collaborate and partner together because the issues again are too big they're too complex they're too multifaceted for any one kind of ministry organization to be able to solve the problem on its own yeah absolutely and, and really that that comes from you know us understanding we are part of a team we are that's it we are doing this together and you that's know it. and that really goes to next thing i want you to what you to talk about and we're going to now get into some of the issues that uh, you, you discuss in When Helping Hurts and for some this will be review which is never a bad thing to review some great uh, things that we need to be thinking about. For some this will be new to you and, and I encourage you if it is new to you to pick up the book and and really dive through these issues that do address, you know I've, I've, I've mentioned to some people that this is a book that I, I believe that everybody that breathes should read. Um, and that's, you know, just simply because these issues are so much deeper. They're, they're the human condition. They're not just about um, helping the poor. It's about who we are in relationship. And, and, and one of the concepts that you know, want to talk about, you just talked there, you know, we just talked about understanding that we're part of a team. We are part of it. And that's really worldview that we're talking about there. Like, what, what, are, what is our purpose here in this world? And really, poverty and orphaning events are, are so often result from, as you talk about in the book, broken worldviews and broken systems. Um, can you flesh that out, like the connection between that and how they are, you know, they really feed into each other? Yeah, you know, um, this really gets back to what is a human being. <laughs> and, and, you know, we believe that a human being is uh, a combination of a body and a soul that are highly integrated with one another. And, and that soul consists of a mind and of a heart and of a will. And, and, and again, that soul is interconnected with the body. They're very tightly interwoven. But, but then that, that, um, th- that human being is, is not in isolation. We are wired in the image of our creator. And what the Bible teaches is that God is three in one. So from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have existed in relationship with one another. God is inherently a relational being. And as his image bearers, we're wired for relationship as well. And so uh, the Bible suggests there's four key relationships for each human being, a relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and then with the rest of creation. And so, again, integrated bodies and souls wired for relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. And so we think human flourishing is to, to live out uh, those four key relationships, to be rightly aligned in those four key relationships, to experience those four key relationships in a way that God designed them to be experienced. And and the fall happens, right? And so those relationships are not working properly. And, and the fall affects uh, the individual. 
one of the ways the fall affects the individual is by distorting our minds, distorting our worldviews, as you suggested. And, and uh, that plays itself out in all kinds of settings. For many poor people around the world, the way the broken, uh, the break, the broken worldview affects them is a sense of inferiority, a sense of um, shame, a sense of incapacity, a sense that they are less than human, and that they can't affect change in their lives. And so often uh, at the core of poverty alleviation is actually helping the poor to understand that they're image bearers, that they have capacity that they are somebody, that they reflect uh, the image of God Almighty the way that a mirror reflects our image. And so so a huge part of poverty alleviation is really just overcoming uh, that fatalism that's so often at the heart of the worldview of the poor. But then there's also broken systems, and those broken systems contribute to the broken relationships as well. And so there's there's stuff outside of the poor that are uh, things that are often beyond their control that, that um, uh, ruin those relationships. And so an easy example would be uh, the Great Recession that we've just uh, come through, right? So a bunch of guys on Wall Street uh, get together and do some stuff, and uh, the, the, the whole mortgage lending crisis happens, and, and the stock market falls, and there's a global recession. And as a result of that global recession, uh, there's fewer jobs available available for people. And so the economic system isn't working properly. And, and you know, the poor didn't ask for that. They didn't contribute to that. It happened to them, right? And so as a result of that broken system, they don't have a job. And as a result, their relationship to creation, which is one of work, is undermined. And so there's broken individuals, broken worldviews, but there's also broken systems uh, that surround the poor. And both have got to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the other side, right, there is a there's a, there is a mutual brokenness that you talk about as well. So the other side of it, you talk about the God complex, but in that in that ex- analogy you used or that example you used with Wall Street, sometimes the other guys on the the wealthy side of the Wall Street equation, so to speak, might think of themselves as better or superior because of the money. And I think That's exactly the same it. way, right? We're around the world. There's a superiority, that God complex. Can you speak to that? And really, the quote in the book that I, one of the quotes I absolutely love is, until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with low-income people is likely to do far more harm than the good. Can you speak to that and uh, really help our under- audience kind of understand that concept? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, the fall happened to me, too. And, and so the fall didn't just happen to materially poor people. It happened to me. And, and um, what's kind of interesting is that the way that it happens to me uh, is a little more subtle, right? So, so um, I have always worked very, very hard my whole life. And, and um, uh, in school, I uh, was always number one in my class. And if you asked me why, uh, I, why are you working so hard at school, I would have said um, – well, I'm trying to develop my gifts and my abilities to glorify God and steward the gifts God has given me. And, you know, Phil, there's truth in that. That's part of my story. But you know, another part of the story is that I'm a control freak. And so <laughs> the, 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 um, for, for me, the thought of getting into a test and not knowing the answer to a question was just a horrifying and very frightening thought. And so kind of the way that I dealt with that insecurity is by working like crazy and memorizing everything and insights so that when I got in the test, I could kind of control the situation, right? The teacher couldn't throw anything at me that I wouldn't already know the answer to. And so that there's a, a sense of control, right? There's a sense of needing to control the situation. And, and um, now in, in the system that, that, that I was born into, uh, that kind of behavior is rewarded, and so what happens is, you know, every day in school, you get a smiley face on your uh, paper and people are telling you how smart you are, and how great you are. And, and it's all a sort of kudos and it's all praising you. And uh, you keep working hard and, and uh, the culture I'm in rewards that. And so you end up with two cars in your driveway and a nice house and life insurance and health insurance. But at the core of it, it, it is actually insecurity. And at the core of it actually is a need to control and at the core of it becomes pride and so you start to say to yourself man i'm pretty great i'm pretty special look how successful i've been and so the bro the way that i'm broken doesn't manifest itself in material poverty the way that i'm broken actually results in material prosperity in the system i'm in in the culture I was born into, given the color of my skin, 
the way I'm broken results in wealth. But, but that brokenness manifests itself in different ways. It manifests itself in health issues related to anxiety. It manifests itself in materialism. It manifests itself in needing to be in control. And, and so the way I'm broken just bubbles up differently. And, and, and the problem is that the way that I'm broken actually makes it very deadly for me to work with materially poor people. Because when a person who has a sense of pride when a person who has a, has a sense that he's better interacts with a person who's materially poor, who has a sense of shame, with a sense of inferiority, the way that I speak to that poor person, the way that I uh, operate with that materially poor person will confirm in them the sense of inferiority they're already feeling. I, I'm going to rush in. I'm going to take over. I'm going to try to control their life. I'm going to try to tell them what to do. And, and as I rush in and take over, they're going to be uh, uh, further incapacitated. Their dignity is going to be marred. And what's going to happen, ironically, is that they're going to become more passive. And, and they're going to say, you know what, I, I really can't do anything. I need Brian to fix me. And as they become more passive, I get more frustrated. My pride goes up. I knew they couldn't do it. I knew they were good for nothing. I knew that they had shame. I, I knew that they uh, weren't as thrifty as I. I knew that they don't work as hard as I do. And so their shame is enhanced and my pride is enhanced. And we're both really more broken at the end of the day. And so I really believe repentance and embracing the good news of the gospel is the first step in poverty alleviation. I've got to tell myself every day that I stink. The Bible says I stink. The Bible says I've got nothing. The Bible says I bring nothing to the table, but that Christ's righteousness bathes me and clothes me. And I start to smell a little bit better. But whenever I start to think that new aroma comes from myself other than through God's grace and mercy, I end up, I end up proud. So I've got to teach. I've got to preach the gospel to myself every day. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that plays out in different ways too. As far as the uh, the brokenness, and sometimes the brokenness, especially the, the God complex, we come in to situations, and and you've talked about that we have our goals for the poor. It's not so much going in and finding out, which you know, as we've as we've determined throughout reading the book and knowing what we've talked about, and anybody doing the work that's had success really knows that uh, the relationship and understanding other, the other person and the other community is really what's going to help determine what the best moving forward is. But sometimes we come into it with our own goals and our, you know, that are based on our Western definition of, quote, success to determine how we're alleviating poverty. And one of the quotes you had a, a couple years ago at, at, uh, when you spoke at Q Nashville, um, you said the goal, and I, I'm going to, you, you said, I forget what country you use, but I've, I've turn it in Honduras because we do work in Honduras, but it says the goal is not to turn Honduras into the United States. The goal is to turn the United States and Honduras into the new Jerusalem by the restoration of all of multilateral relationships between Hondurans and Americans and Honduran and American systems. So what does this look like in practice in the context of our care with orphan and vulnerable children in our context with the poor? Um, you know, first of all, how are our goals for the poor often you know, kind of marred and how does that play out? But then also, how does it play out when we really do see it? And kind of what I say is, we're not looking for uh, Honduran excellence. We're not looking for American excellence. We're looking for gospel excellence. So how does that, you know, the the question really, how does it play play out in practice, both kind of on the negative side, when we're coming in with goals that may not be, you know, consistent with scripture, um, uh, but are based more on our Western definition of success versus when we're really having a gospel perspective. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm better at the critique than I am at the solution, Phil. I'm still <laughs> trying to figure I'm still trying to figure it out. But um, you, you know, the, on, on the critique end, I, I would suggest that most Americans, when we work with the poor or when we work with orphans in particular, we, we think the goal is, is to make people like sort of suburban Americans, that we're kind of the end game, that, that we're – uh, flourishing, that uh, uh, people in Honduras or people in inner city America are not flourishing the way we are, and so that the goal is to make those folks like us. And there's different ways to do that, but one way is to adopt them into our families so that they can be just like us. And and um, the, the problem with that is that it doesn't recognize our own brokenness. And it, it's really interesting if you if you look at research. Um, right now, what, what economists are discovering 
is something that <laughs> the Bible taught us a long time ago. And in the words of a popular song, money doesn't buy you love. And, and, and so we, we uh, are, are observing right now uh, massive increases in wealth in the United States, but actually declining measures of happiness. So as the West has gotten wealthier and wealthier, we've actually become less and less happy. If we use more objective measures, let's say like mental illness, for example, uh, mental illness has skyrocketed in America in the past 50 years, particularly amongst our youth. And, and so, uh, you know, mental illness is a measure of our well-being. And, and, and when we're mentally ill, it's, it's, it's a, it, it reflects um, to, to some degree that we're square pegs and round holes. We're, 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 we're being forced into some way of being that's not conducive to human flourishing. Something is wrong. And, and um, you know, I, as I shared earlier, I struggle with anxiety like crazy. And, and so what is that about? There, there's, some, there's something about being human that isn't working right for me. And, and my body and my, my emotions are revolting against the fact that uh, I'm a square peg being forced into a round hole somehow. It doesn't work. And, and, and so I think we've got to step back and, and ask ourselves, why would we want to um, adopt kids into a culture that, quite frankly, is falling apart right now? In, in many ways. And there's wonderful things in the United States. I'm so thankful to live here. But in many ways, we're falling apart as a culture. So why would we hold that up as the end game? Why would we say, gee, that, that's the goal. We want to make you into materialistic, narcissistic kids like, like this generation is that we've just raised, the millennials. And, and, and so we, so the first step is to step back and say, we're not the end game. This is just not the goal. And, and that affects everything. It, it means that uh, our assumptions when we're working with uh, poor children around the world we have to become different assumptions. When we're working with kids in orphanages, uh, our assumptions about what flourishing will look like for them, uh, those assumptions have to change. And, and, and what does that change into? Well, Phil, I wish I knew that completely. I, I think um, it, it has to do with, I think, going back into the scriptures and trying to figure out what does it mean to really walk with God? What, you know, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They were in deep relationship with him. What does that really look like day to day? What what does it mean to really live in community with others? Um, uh, what does it really mean to to be a steward of creation, but not not to, to worship the creation? What does it mean to see work as worship instead of as a means to <clears throat> uh, getting ahead and getting more material resources? So I think we've got to kind of reconfigure our concepts of human flourishing and, and, and that puts us, I think, in a posture <clears throat> of listening more. I, I think if we're in Honduras, for example, there's wonderful things in Honduran culture. There certainly are broken things, right? But there's wonderful things. Mm -hmm. I suspect we find that there are notions of walking with God, notions of community, notions of being a steward of creation that folks in Honduras have figured out that, that um, we should listen to a little bit more. It, it, it doesn't mean they have it all right because they don't. But, but there's a posture of mutual learning, a posture of uh, we're on a journey together as God's people that we've got to adopt as opposed to a posture of we're the end game. We've got to go rescue all these poor people all over the world and, and bring them into our, our, our world because cause, cause we're the, we're the uh, pot of gold to end the rainbow. That just messed up. And so it's a different posture. It's a posture of humility, mutual brokenness. Uh, diving back into the word and into community with God's people together. Yeah, you know, and, and again, I encourage you folks out there, if these, if these, you know, I understand, if you haven't read the book, some of these concepts, some of these things may be like, what the heck, this is so, because a lot of it is paradigm shifting, and it's something that we really need to understand these concepts. So if you haven't read the book, definitely pick it up read it because it, Brian and Steve are able to put this into words that, you know, I, I remember when I was reading the book, I, I like yelled at my wife across the room. I said, honey, I'm reading the book that I wanted to write. And now I don't have to. And <laughs> it was this rejoicing. And my wife's like, what are you a freak? You know? And, and, and it was, and she's right to a certain extent, but, um, but I think it's so true because like you said, it is the human condition and it is what we're created to do is to have this relationship, this, this right relationship with God, with others, with, 
with you know community with with the rest of creation with ourself you know to understand our identity and what that looks like and you know but at the same time um you, you wrote a book or a couple uh follow-ups to When Helping Hurts, Helping Without Hurting in Short-Term Missions, and Helping Without Hurting in Church Benevolence. And then you have some, like you said, you have other resources as well. But those two studies are great, great resources. And I encourage folks out there to grab them because we, we're not even going to be able to begin to touch the, the, the depth of those issues. Um, but what I would, you know, if, if you can, you know, if there's like the three-minute version, you know, if you had the yeah. soundbite of, of the kind of the short-term missions and how this plays out, these abstract concepts play out in the short-term missions and how, you know, if, if you're talking to a church and you have three minutes to tell them, hey, you know, this is how I really want you to change the way, or it may not change, how I want you to um, engage short-term missions in a healthy way that will hopefully help more than it hurts. What would you say to them? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is um, you can't alleviate poverty in a week, but you sure can make it worse in a week. Mm. If poverty is rooted in broken relationships, how, how long does it take you to reconcile a relationship? Well, I don't know about you, Phil, but uh, it, doesn't, it takes me more than a week. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you can't alleviate poverty in a week, but you can make it worse in a week. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, when you are uh, dealing with people uh, who have a marred self-image, a marred identity, and you rush in and you hurl around resources and you give out resources aimlessly, you give away uh, uh, used shoes, you give away used clothing, and you give away toys, you can further mar the identity of the people in that context. And you can communicate to them what they're already feeling. I can't affect change in my life. I need the Americans to come fix me. And and some of our listeners may be saying, well, how harmful can it be if I just go and do that once? What we often forget is that our short-term trip is one of many short-term trips that are probably going to that church or that ministry or that community over the course of a year. And so the sum total of all of these short-term teams taken together create um, the worst elements of a welfare state. And, and I, I believe there's a role for government assistance. I believe there's a role for welfare. But, but the, the worst elements of the welfare system, where we undermine dignity, where we undermine capacity by hurling around resources, are mimicked by wave after wave of short-term trips. And we see this all the time. We see ministries who are doing long-term uh, poverty alleviation work that's developmental, that's helping people to discover their own gifts, their own resources, and their own abilities. We see those long-term, powerfully effective relational ministries being undermined by short-term trips. You know, there's an example we give in our book in the Dominican Republic of, of a ministry that was walking with uh, poor uh, or low-income Dominican children uh, through Bible studies week in and week out, but that ministry has been undermined because the short-term teams come in and hurl around toys and hurl around resources, and the Dominican children are more attracted to the Americans than they are to the long-term relationships of the Dominican staff. And so uh, bad short-term missions undermines good long-term developmental work. Now, now what can it look like? Is there a role for short-term trips? We actually believe there is. But they need to be reconfigured. Instead of thinking that you're going to go and alleviate poverty in a week, understand that poverty is rooted in these broken relationships, that poverty alleviation is a a long-term process of reconciling relationships. And the people who are best positioned to do that work are the churches and ministries that are there on the ground over the long haul. They've got to be front and center. They're the primary manifestation of Jesus Christ in those communities, not us. And so our role is to find good ministries, effective ministries, ministries that are helping the poor to discover their own gifts, their own abilities to steward their own assets, find those ministries and, and come alongside of them uh, on short-term trips that are primarily about learning, that we're going to learn. We're going to learn about their realities. We're going to learn about what God is doing in their work. We're going to learn from them. Secondly, focus on fellowship. Focus on being together and then use that fellowship to encourage the people who are there over the long haul. And and, and this sounds boring. It sounds like it's not very powerful. It is extremely powerful 
Uh, if you've ever run on a ministry, you know that it's it's extremely hard work. Uh, it's day in a, it's a day in and day out grind. You're not sure if you're making progress half the time. You're not sure if your donors believe in you. To have those who are financially supporting your ministry come alongside of you and say, we believe in you. We believe in what you're doing, and we're going to go back and pray for you. We're going to go back and raise more money to support your ministry. We're, we're, we're with you over the long haul. It's incredibly powerful, but it's a different role. It's a backstage role rather than a front stage role. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, another, another area that I think is related, I'd love to hear your thoughts um, on child sponsorships. And just really, are there ways to, you know, and, and it may be that the way they're, they're being executed is, is consistent, but it, ways that child sponsorship programs can be um, executed in ways that are consistent with When Helping Hurts and the principles there. Yeah, I, I think it's important to realize that, child, that not all child sponsorship programs are created equal. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> this is going to sound... Um, really crass, and I, I don't mean it to, but fundamentally, child sponsorship is a fundraising mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so what really matters is how are the funds being used on the other end? Mm-hmm. And so, for example, <clears throat> one approach to child sponsorship, I'm going to paint in very broad strokes right now, and I don't have any particular organizations in mind, and so this is more of a parable. <laughs> okay, so so one approach to child sponsorship is um, a donor in the U.S. Uh, gives you know thirty dollars a month, and that thirty dollars a month is handed to uh, that child. And that child has now been sponsored, and that child can spend the $30 however they want, or the money is handed to the child's parents, and that <clears throat> those parents can spend the money however they want. Another approach might be to say, we're going to try to walk with this community and to empower this community, to help this community to discover its gifts and its assets, to help the leaders and the families in this community discover <clears throat> that they're made in the image of God. They're called to steward the resources in their community and to, to use a very empowering process like that that's very asset-based, very participatory, very developmental. And then what you can do is you can say, you know what, there's a thousand children in this village and uh, we're going to divide the cost of our program up by those thousand children and then say to donors in the U.S., will you pay for essentially this program by sponsoring a child, but the money is really going for community empowerment. Those are both child sponsorship programs, but one is handing out money to the children. The other is using the child sponsorship funds to foster an entire community that happens to have children in it. And and so so the issue isn't child sponsorship versus non-child sponsorship. The issue is how is the money being used on the other end? Is it being used for a dole outs or is it being used for a community and family empowerment that can bring lasting change? Does that yeah. make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Sense? I think there's so we're, we're you know, we're, we actually have what's called extended family adoption at La Providencia where, where we're working down there. And we're talking about moving to a family sponsorship uh, role really to, to kind of, as you talk about, um, to kind of really be more clear on what we want to do and to mm-hmm. hopefully educate people in, look, this is a relationship with more than just a mm-hmm. child. It's a That's relationship it. with the entire family or the entire community or, you know, whatever that may be. And I think that really goes to a lot of the, you know, the conversations that, you know, we need to be honest with what we're doing um, and really just be honest with ourselves, be honest with others, you know, and I think be honest with God ultimately of what's going on. Um, with that, you know, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to this. We have a few minutes left, so I just want to kind of finish up with three questions. One is, how have churches been responding to that? You know, you, you kind of mentioned, you alluded to the fact that these ideas, these concepts really aren't very romantic. They often don't market well. They're often at odds with the way it's been done for decades um, in, in churches. And so how can, how are churches responding and how can, you know, churches realistically transition from kind of old school um, short-term trips, old-school kind of poverty alleviation methods that really haven't been yep. effective to effective ones that are helping more than they're hurting. Yeah, so there's been a range of responses. Uh, w- one response has been uh, uh, 
paralysis. So some folks kind of say, you know what, we, we uh, understand that uh, we have been doing some things that have been hurting. Uh, we want to do better. We're not really sure where to begin. We're not sure how to change. And so there's a little bit of paralysis there. And, and, and our message to those folks is um, don't be paralyzed. Our, our, our message is not that you can never do anything good. Our message is not that um, uh, everything you've been doing is horrible. Our message is more just get better. Uh, uh, take some steps in the right direction. Start to look at your existing ministries and ask how can you make them a little more developmental? How can you make them a little more empowering? Sometimes the changes are small. Uh, sometimes small changes can have big impacts. So, so for example, I know of a church that was distributing toys at Christmas time. They simply changed it and said, let's uh, have the members of our church donate toys to our church. Let's have people, uh, low-income parents, come to the church and buy those toys at a very low price. Then they can take those toys home and, and be uh, uh, the heroes in the eyes of their own children. And it's, it's worked very well. And so sometimes small adjustments uh, to your existing ministries can move from things that are demeaning to things that are more empowering. Uh, a second response, which uh, quite frankly disturbs me more, is essentially ignoring the message. And, and I'm going to say some hard things here, but I, I, think, I think they're truthful things. Um, the reality of it is that most churches in the United States anyways have no incentive to change. Uh, the the <laughs> Uh, again, this is going to sound very crass, but in business terms, the customer is in the pew. Mm. And uh, if the customer is happy with what's happening, um, they're going to continue to pay for what's happening. And there's no incentive in uh, a purely economic sense for the pastor to change what he's doing. And, and so I think we see a lot of churches who are simply saying, you know what, uh, the customer likes going on the kind of short-term mission trips we're currently going on, and they're willing to pay for it, and it makes our church grow. And why rock the boat? It seems to work. It makes our customer happy. And and uh, that really saddens me. It, it, it demonstrates, I think, a lack of courage amongst the leadership. I think it, it demonstrates a materialism at the heart of the leadership uh, and and, and it, I think we need to repent of that. We need to say, what is what is God's mission in the world? And how can we as a church get on board with God's mission? And that means dying to ourselves, forsaking our own goals, and living for Christ and for his goals. And that's about his kingdom. And it's about reconciliation. It's not about us growing our own empires. And so uh, I'm most disturbed by that reaction. Uh, a third reaction and I would say this is mostly true amongst newer churches uh, uh, that tend to be a little more entrepreneurial, that tend to not be so locked in uh, to existing programs and ministries uh, that tend to be more entrepreneurial. They're, they're more on board with going, how can we do this better? Mm -hmm. how, can, how can we uh, start off on the right foot? How can we uh, pursue God's mission in a, in a more consistent way? And so, you know, a lot of folks are very discouraged about the millennial generation, and I certainly have concerns about the millennial generation, but I think one of the gifts of the millennial generation is they're highly entrepreneurial and they're highly relational. And I actually find that they understand these messages better than a lot of the older folks do. And they want to live in relationship. They get it. And so I actually think that the, the approach we're talking about, um, this isn't why we should do it, but it is the case that I do think it can help us uh, to, to attract the millennial generation to the church and to God's mission if we function in a more relational sense. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I teach at a university as well, and, and I've seen that in the same thing. It's when I'm talking with the students at the university level, it's a whole different reaction than when I'm talking with the missions pastors yeah. who are, unfortunately, a lot of missions pastors in churches, and I say unfortunately, maybe that's the wrong word, but are, are of the... Uh, over 55 uh, age bracket, and so I think it's the reactions are very, very different, and and uh, I, I I saw similar reactions that you talked about in when I talked to people about these principles. Well, we have a, a couple more questions. I'm actually going to combine the last two questions because I know that that you uh, you have another place to get. So I want to respect your time today, but uh, I do want you to be able to give back to all the folks who have recommended your book and and give to our audience some recommendations or you know one or two books that uh, or or things you've watched or listened to 
um, that really have shaped your thinking about the issues that we've discussed today? And then also, um, what person has uh, most shaped your thinking about how we can uh, really live out the principles and the things that we've talked about today? Yeah, in terms of books, I think I'd recommend three. The, the first is uh, Walking with the Poor by Bryant Myers, which is uh, an absolutely brilliant book. Uh, and uh, every it's, it's not the easiest book to read, but every time I pick it up, I learn something new. And, and so it's the kind of book that just kind of goes with you throughout your life if you're engaged in this work. So Walking with the Poor by Bryant Myers. I really like a book by a guy named Mark Gornick called To Live in Peace, Biblical Faith and the Changing Inner City. Uh, Mark has done some incredible work uh, in the United States, both in Baltimore and in New York City. It's called To Live in Peace. And um, so those two, and I guess the third book, I think um, The Prodigal God uh, by Tim Keller gets at a lot of what I'm talking about today in a, in a broader context about how our sense of superiority really um, uh, enslaves us. And so I really would recommend The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. In terms of people, uh, I would say that um, uh, two of my colleagues have really shaped me the most. One is Steve Corbett, my co-author, uh, When Helping Hurts, and then also a guy named Russ Mask, who's the co-author of a book with me called From Dependence to Dignity, uh, How to Alleviate Poverty Through Church-Centered Microfinance. God brought uh, Russ and Steve into my life way back at the beginning of the, the Chalmers Center and our community development major, and they have really spoken into my life and have had a huge impact on my thinking and on my heart. And so I'm very grateful to those two brothers. Well, Brian, thank you so much for um, for sharing your wisdom today, to sharing your wisdom in the different uh, books that you've written. Uh, thanks again for uh, being a part of In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence and writing the forward to that. I know that that's uh, meant a lot to me, and I know so many others. Um, and yeah, just thank you for living out the call that God's put on your life in, in real ways that have encouraged me and so many others to, to really engage these issues in ways that uh, make us think, make us be better, and really uh, challenge all of us to um, really reconcile the relationships um, that, that are broken. And so thanks, Brian. Uh, very much appreciate you and, uh, and the impact that you're having. Thanks, Phil. It's great to be with you today. Well, I hope that you all out there enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I, I had such a great time uh, just having that conversation with Brian and just hearing all his wisdom, hearing his humility as well. That was something that comes across as a guy who's written one of the most uh, influential books in missions and one of the most influential books in poverty alleviation over the years. To hear his humility um, and that humble posture he has is just it's so encouraging to me so karen i'm, I'm curious to hear what, what what you thought about it oh man i could talk for so long about this but i know that the interview is a little bit longer than usual so you know one of the things that i just was so encouraged by when i first heard about this book and first read about this book was just everything that he talks about and speaks about and writes about just related to healthy relationships um, related to relationships in general just the way that he talks through what what is a human being and what does that look like? Even, you know, when he was in the interview, you could hear him speaking and I'm thinking, okay, this sounds like philosophy class. This sounds like hmm. some of the psychology classes that I teach or I've had to take. And it's just encouraging to hear that so much of his work is focused on um, who, who, who are people and how do we make sure that we're um, showing dignity for all types of people. And so it's super encouraging to hear that. And anytime that someone um, is tracking with some of the same things that I've learned about in my field, and especially as a Christian in my field of just helping and um, helping the general public, but particularly the church to understand the veracity of mental health and the importance of mental health um, and understanding that we've all been impacted by the fall. And just because our story may not look like someone maybe on quote unquote the wrong side of the tracks or maybe because we're not necessarily in poverty it doesn't mean that our lives are perfect and it doesn't mean that we haven't been impacted by the fall mm -hmm. yeah that's something that that this book you know and i teach out of this book in the classes that i teach at uh, william jessup and other and other places and one of the things that that keeps coming up over and over is just our our brokenness our mutual brokenness you know right he talks so much about that but then it goes on to see that, how does that play out in practice? And I think with our mutual brokenness and with our brokenness, particularly as Westerners, you know, we, both you and I are speaking as Westerners, we often come in with that God complex, but we also often come in, I think that he, he kind of hit it 
at the end of the interview where he started talking about a lot of churches, a lot of people with their missions don't have an incentive to change. As he said, yeah. he said, it sounds kind of crass and, and it, it, you know, it, it's just truth, you know, where he said the customer, quote unquote, is in the pew and they're keep, they're willing and they're, they're like the way it's being done. So they have no incentive to change, even though it's causing harm, even though it's inflicting damage, you know, and he's spoken that in the context of, you know, where he said, you know, you can't affect too much change in a week, but you can inflict a lot of harm in one week. Yes. And that was those two things kind of go together that if we don't do something to change this, you know, which is what so many of the other guests we've had have talked to and spoken to. Um, if we don't do something to change this, then we're going to keep having the same problem. We're going to keep doing damage. And I know that you have some strong feelings on that. So I'd love to hear your just, you know, some quick thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm tracking with that. And that was one of the things that I highlighted and underlined and put asterisks by when he said, you know, you're not going to be able to alleviate this in a week, but you can absolutely make it worse. And just, you know, synthesizing everything that he had said and thinking through the past couple of weeks and months on the show. And especially I just keep going back to that um, refugee crisis series and learned so much from that. And it's, it's, it's all about the approach with which we take in working with anyone, whether it's someone here in the States or in my own state or someone across the country or across the globe, it's that humility with which we approach it and the humility with which we're trying to bring you know, God's people together in community, but it starts from a place on our end of humility and understanding that and we, we don't have all of the answers just because I've been to school for however many years absolutely doesn't mean I have all of the answers. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I, like you said, we could, do you, do you have anything else before we go into the next, into the next segment? Because we could talk on and on about this, but I just want to make sure I'll give you the last chance because there's just such an amazing, um, you know, man who has, has been able to have such a great impact on this area. And so I'm just curious to hear if you have anything last thoughts, if not, we can move into the next, the next segment. Yeah, I mean, I could talk a million things. I, I would say that if people are just kind of spot listening to this, to just go back and listen to kind of towards the end of his interview where you asked him about short-term missions. And that's a question that we ask often on this show. And his, his response was legit and it was respectful, but it was also speaking truth into some of the things that can be really harmful, but also some ways to do short-term missions really well. And so I thought that was important for our listeners to hear as well as for me to hear. Yeah, too. And, and the, the nice thing is, as well, as you heard in the interview, there are so many other resources that are out there that, that the Chalmers Center is putting out uh, in addition to When Helping Hurts, which, again, if you haven't read it, go out, get it, buy it, read it, listen to it, whatever you do, you know, consume that information and engage that information because it is it is critical. And there's also all the other resources that, that Brian mentioned. They're all going to be in the show notes. Click on them, buy them from Amazon, and, you know, and really dive into them. Uh, so, you know, right now we're going to move into the, the next segment, which is, you know, me walking through the blog post that I uh, wrote um, recently. And it, and it uh, is up on the thinkorphan.com website. Uh, it's basically top, you know, the, the top five, I say top five, the five things that I learned, um, really most of them weren't things I learned. They were things that were confirmed, uh, last year that were, that were lessons that, you know, God just showed me in, in real ways. And so, um, this next one is one that, you know, out there, if you listen to this show at all, you know, this is a passion of mine, you know, this is something that, uh, is one of the main reasons we're doing this, this show. Um, and it's that the, 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 the lesson is collaboration is a key to excellence, but it is very hard. It's time intensive to work effectively with others, you know, and, and really, you know, this, this is something that, as, as I say on the, in the blog post, it's, it's to do anything meaningful on a global scale and virtually on any other scale. Um, collaboration is necessary. We can't do it alone. Um, you know, and this is something that I've seen over and over and over again in my life as a, as a lifelong soccer player, I know that you can't have a soccer team with one guy who's the star that's just doing everything that runs all over the field and plays every position. That's impossible. 
You need 11 players working together to have a great team. You can have a good team without that, but to have a great team, to have a championship team, you need to have people working together on the same page with the same vision, with the same goals, and actually understand what each other are doing. And as you get to know each other better, as you spend more time together, as you work harder and harder together, you get better and better, and you start actually working as one, and the synergies happen. That same thing happens in our organizations. That same thing happens in our churches. That same thing happens as the church. When we know each other, when we take time to get to know each other and start working together, we are so much more effective and we can have so many more synergies. And, you know, it's, it's kind of cool, you know, that I've watched a couple movies with my kids over the last couple months. And, um, you know, one was Jumanji, Back to the Jungle. I mentioned that on the on this podcast a couple episodes ago. I never thought I'd talk about Jumanji once on this show. And the fact that I'm talking about it twice, um, really, it goes into, this is going to be the Phil and, and Karen recommend section, um, combined with this, because there's, there's two movies that I never thought, like before I watched them, that I'd be recommending them. But both of them actually talk about collaboration a lot. I'm going to try to do this without spoiling the movies, but... Um, I'm probably going to fail in that. So if, if you really you know, don't want the spoiler, you know, this is a spoiler alert. So Jumanji, Back to the Jungle, and the other one is Ninjago. And that's the new Lego movie. So I watched these with my kids, and both of them, the characters basically, the, the, the idea of the, of the movies are they have these quests, they have these challenges they have to overcome. And the only way that they can overcome these challenges is to work together. Each of them have strengths. Each of them have special gifts. Each of them have uh, secret weapons, as the Ninjago talked about, is the ultimate secret weapon, the ultimate weapon. (laughs) Well, that ultimate weapon was them working together. Sorry, again, spoiler, I I warned you. Um, Jumanji, they could not win the game without working together. And I really feel that's how it is with us in this work, in what we're doing. We cannot put a dent into this unless we work together. We all have secret weapons. We all have strengths that we can give, that we can do, that we can use for this. And, you know, it's more than a game. This is real life. These are real lives. These are people. These are human beings. These are kids. These are families. These are people out there who we can work with. It's not to do stuff for. It's we can work with them who are amazing people. We, and you know what? Whoever you are, listen, you're an amazing person. God's given you amazing gifts and talents. And so we can use those amazing gifts and talents together with other people with amazing gifts and talents to be able to pull that out so we can all flourish. We can start bringing some shalom to the communities around the world. And then true justice can outflow from that. So, you know, Karen, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And the thing that just kept running through my head um, was everything you're saying on macro level is so relevant for micro level, for our individual families, for parents being um, collaborative and parents Mm. co-parenting, even within the same family unit of being on the same page and working together to provide a safe, loving, consistent and nurturing environment for your children. that you've grown your family by birth or children through foster care or adoption. So hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, and I, and I just go back and I, I'm going to end the show with this, that this reminds me actually of what Brian was talking about in the interview when he was talking about his daughter and his son and his son asking his daughter to dance and says, that's what our heavenly father wants is for our, for his kids to dance together. That brings joy to him. And that was such mm-hmm. a great picture I was like, and I was just tearing up during the interview. And even when I heard it again, it was just to think of that with my kids, to think of that, you know, if my son at a wedding would go up to my daughter and say, hey, can we dance? And then to have fun doing that. Like what joy mm-hmm. would that bring to my heart and to my life and to my mind? And to see that God is that wanting that with us. Um, and so, you know, with that, folks out there, you know, I hope that, that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, uh, as much as I enjoyed interviewing Brian, his conversations with Karen, just sharing with you guys what I'm learning. I absolutely love being able to do that. Um, we're all learning right alongside you. And I just pray and hope that you'll take all that you're learning, all that you're engaging with this and you'll use it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children more and more each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.